on the Figures of Speech podcast, hosts Tammy Palazzo and Tim Wickstrom talk to a wide range of amazingly successful executives, business owners, and leaders about how learning to communicate changed their lives and their fortunes. Every episode gives us stories we can emulate and lessons we can follow. Today's topic is one that I am really passionate about and have very firsthand experience with, and that is fear, particularly fear of public speaking. And I'm, I'm really fixated about fear, and I know you are as well, Tim, in, insofar as how it affects us and how we communicate. But of course, you know, I think about fear in this big broad way because I have phobias, I'm terrified of heights, and throughout my life, I've seen how fear hold, has held me back. And I see how it holds other people back. And I think it's become a theme as business owners because we often talk about our own fears and we get feedback from investors about not being fearful and you have to be bold. And every article that we read is about, you know, don't be afraid of failing. Don't be afraid of this. Don't be afraid of that. But I'm really excited that we're talking about the fear in particular in relation to public speaking, because this is something that I've struggled with through most of my life and had the good fortune, obviously, to meet you uh, almost a decade ago. And you really were able to tap into what was holding me back. And just to share that story a little bit, I have been afraid of public speaking my whole life. And my earliest memory of fear of being in front of other people was in second grade when I was in a talent show and I had to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow all by myself on this big stage at PS41 in Bayside, Queens. And I remember being there and I was this incredibly shy, insecure, chubby kid getting up. I couldn't sing, but I did it. And I often reflect upon that, that I did it, but I remember being so terrified. And I think it was one of those foundational memories in my life that I, the feeling I could taste it, you know, it's so palpable and it really influenced my entire life in terms of how I how I dealt with having to communicate on any level. But as a kid, like I was afraid to call people on the phone. When I became a professional, I hated having to call people. I was afraid of being rejected and I was afraid that I was gonna say stupid things. And when it was my time to be called on in a meeting, I was afraid that I couldn't remember what to say. Like all the things that we always hear about. And I know Tim, you've you've had similar experiences in your life. I absolutely we all have those stories. I have several <laughs> over the decades of my life to share. I think that's true for most people if you ask them about presenting, they don't bring up their best experience ever. The first 10 that come to mind are their worst examples. The ones that have penetrated their mind and as set in stone, this is something I'm so bad at. But yeah, I mean, for me, it's the same way. It goes back to a very early age. And I, I don't know how it gets started, to be perfectly honest with you. What I do recall out of it is the the emotional and physical reaction caused by the situation. And just as a kid getting older and older, growing up in a small town and being different from everybody else in such a way that you really want to know how to neutralize that, but yet you don't know what to do with it. 
and you feel like it's standing out. And that's all about perception. It's not always there. It's self-induced. And I think that uh, learning a lot of this along the way, and then finally, my own opportunity to learn how to do this differently and that I, in fact, can control how the perception is of me when I'm presenting, I always thought that it helped me get rid of the fear. And the reality is it didn't. Uh, it didn't get rid of the fear. And I thought there was something wrong. And I'm really excited to dive in today around the fear and where some of those drivers are with that fear uh, and talking to a couple of our guests that can help illuminate there's a biological element to this and a, a beyond the perception that I think I'm really excited to get their perspective on and understand what that means. You know, we've been training now, Tammy, for a decade. You and I have been interacting with folks that have their own stories, their own situations. I don't know about you. For me, I find it interesting to be on the other side of the equation now looking at them and being able to relate but also want to pull them along and help them see the light at the other end of the tunnel, it doesn't have to feel that way. And even if it does feel that way, it doesn't have to show up that way. I'm curious, Tim, because we do hear this all the time. Whenever we're coaching anybody, typically the first comment that they bring up is, I'm really afraid to do this. And, you know, I think we both do this. We, we probe. You know, what are you afraid of? What right. What's the worst thing that can happen? And we have this perception of ourselves that I I'm might fall die, I might my fall face. over. Right, <laughs> right. And, and I was coaching someone recently. And I said, let's be realistic. You're not going to die. You know, if you jump out of an airplane and the, the parachute doesn't open, you will die. Like that's a legitimate fear. People who are afraid of flying get up in a plane and they hear these terrible stories about a plane crashing. You could die, but you're not going to die. Public speaking, unless you're public speaking, while you're jumping out of a plane and the parachute doesn't open. <laughs> but in reality, that's not going to happen. But that is our perception of ourselves. And I'm curious to know, and I don't know that you and I have ever talked about this before oh. this moment, but when you met me, you inherently believed either because you trusted the process or you saw something, but you inherently believe that I could be better. And I'd like to believe, and, and I mean this sincerely, I'd like to believe that it, we don't always think, you know, there are certain people you meet and you think they're going to struggle. They're going to struggle their whole life. Like they are naturally introverted. They, they're, they're resistant to change, but you obviously saw something different than what I saw. Sure. And I'm curious to know because it was a big challenge to take on, to take me from someone who had flop sweat and huge anxiety to someone who would be confident. Like what, what as a trainer, what is it that you see that we don't see when we're experiencing the fear? I, wow, you're right. I don't think we ever have really talked about it this way. Uh, I'm glad you asked because for me, when I met you, that's actually the first indicator that I had long before you and I talked about how to help you with presentation skills, before I even knew what you struggled with, what my first indicator was, was really your willingness. If you recall, when you and I first met uh, working at this boutique firm and that very first day we worked together at this at the team meeting, and you very bravely, and this is how I remember you, bravely got up and sort of broke the conversation and led it. And my impression of you at the time was, wow, like you're really not afraid to jump in. And 
I know these people, you don't know them. Some of them you've just been introduced to today, me included. And I just thought that was one of the bravest things I've seen someone do. And I would have just sat in the background and took it all in and weighed the situation out. Is this strategically right? And for me, if that, that's that's my first go-to was the willingness, the 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 risk taking to jump out and do that. So when you and I later on in working together talked about this idea of you know teaching you these presentation skills, I honestly didn't see it as a struggle the way you saw yourself, which is common, right? Yeah. We don't always we see ourselves far worse than other people see us. We're our own worst enemy, our own worst critic. And it was amazing to me, but not surprising that you saw yourself that way. But what really drove me to believe there was no question in my mind, not one question in my mind that you could change this for yourself. All I'll do is give you the tools was that very first day we worked together and you getting up in front of everybody and taking that risk to do it. If you're willing to do that, this is a no brainer. Interesting. Interesting. Maybe there is a future of me jumping out of a plane because I, <laughs> I, I never think about it that With way. With a parachute. With a parachute that's open. I want to pre-open. Um, you know, it, it is a really interesting concept. And obviously we coach a lot of people and we hear many varieties of why people are anxious. And my experience now that I'm on the other side of it, right, I'm a recovered uh I'm recovered in so far as that I can do it. And I think you made a really good point. People assume that if you are a prolific speaker that you no longer have fear about it. And what they don't realize is that we just manage our fear much better. Yeah. And I've shared this story with a number of people that when we first, early in my days of doing this, and when we first started our business and we started pitching, which was something I was really anxious about, I could manifest the anxiety in a shaky leg. I would feel my legs start twitching. I knew all the anxiety was going to one place. And as time evolved and I got more comfortable, it no longer was there. I didn't have the shaky voice. I didn't have the twitchy leg. And now it's more about understanding, and it's what we teach people, right? breathing and having your devices that allow you to be present or to give yourself what you need to think on your feet or whatever it might be. Um, but I, I, I do think it's really important to allow people to see themselves, to help them realize that they're better than they think they are. And I think that's what really made the difference for me is that while the process of learning and being coach was really hard for me because I'm a perfectionist and I didn't want to allow those vulnerabilities to show that I felt so uncomfortable doing it, even just in a one-on-one -on -one situation with someone I trusted, that once we got to the other side of it and I was beginning to see, oh, I understand this, it makes sense, and I was having a different outcome. Right. I think that's really where people begin to shift from having this you know, dire fear to saying, okay, now this is something I can manage. So I'm excited. I'm excited for the, the conversation today because I think we're really going to dig into the psychology behind it all and help people really understand that fear is a very real palpable thing. And I know you've written some blog posts about it. I have as well in terms of what's happening chemically inside of our bodies that's causing it. 
but that it's also something that's very manageable, but it's normal and healthy and not surprising. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I'm coming into this personally for myself, uh, fully acknowledging even to this day, I still have that emotional and I'm sure chemical reaction. You know, we talk about the situations that some people are comfortable in and others that they're not comfortable in. For example, I might be better in a one-on-one than I would be in front of a thousand people, or it might be familiarity with the audience. If there are people I know, I'm going to be a little more worried because they know me and they might dissect me and slice and dice differently versus a room full of people, regardless of size, they don't know me. So it's a free range. I'm, I'm not worried about their judgment. At the end of the day, I won't see them. And the interesting part for me is that I... I find myself still having those reactions on the inside, and sometimes it's still visible on the outside. And I really want to understand from our guests today, what does that mean? What, you know, what's the background behind it? I did come into this thinking, and I'm still coming into it thinking, the more I master my skill set, the more I control the outward impression of that and perception. And I believe that's still true, but I think it's limited. I still think that there are triggers out there and I know I'm getting triggered. So for me, I want my own evolution out of this next one to understand from a, from a psychological and chemical perspective, what might be happening to me because I've been doing this now for so long, one would think you shouldn't have that, but I know the truth to be different. It still happens to me regardless of how good I think I might be. Yeah, interesting. I, I it's funny because a lot of the professional speakers that we talk to will always talk about their fear. You know, that's it's just such a real, it's a real thing. And and I I, I think we need to honor that. You know, the fear drives us. Like it's not a. I think we perceive that fear is a bad thing and we need to eliminate it, but fear allows us to work harder and be on our toes. And it's everything that we know from a business perspective, like the fear, the fear and anxiety that we experience forces us to push harder. And I think it can be, we can be used in a really positive and productive way. I, I agree. You know, when we're coaching people, we're always, ta- I am always talking about, and I've heard you do this as well you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes before you're doing a presentation, your body says, you know what, you don't do this all the time. I'm going to just shoot you with some adrenaline. And I wish I had your sound machine right now to give a better expression. (laughs) But yet that happens. And what I, I have a level of influence and expertise that says, this is what you can do to mitigate that. This is how you can use your body language or your eye contact or your voice to overcome that. And I still have that question that I really want to know more today about is what's some other solutions. And maybe part of the solution is shifting the framework. I've, I've over the years become so focused on this is fear. This is how you deal with fear. You don't get rid of fear, but you can mask the fear. And I wonder if there's just a different approach from their perspective uh, and their lens that can help me individually figure that out a little better. Yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna cut over to hear them, but I hope our listeners will share their stories with us. I think one of the m- most interesting things before we before we introduce our guests is that we try to find somebody to come on and talk to us and be be part of this conversation, someone who struggled with their own fear. And a couple of people acknowledged that 
they were interested, but then when it came time to do the interview, they bailed out on us. And I think that's really noteworthy uh, to, to, to talk about that, you know, people don't want to talk about it. It's, I know it's, it's scary it, to talk it, about it, but it blows me away. Even so we're okay. Most people are okay talking about it, but even coming on a podcast where they don't see you, we don't want to identify with right. fear. yet. We know you're terrified as though you're, you're the only one that we had an opportunity to speak with. The barrier is just incredible to me that we could not find anybody who was willing to share their stories. So to your point, before I introduce our guests that are coming on today, we really encourage our listeners, please share your ideas, share your experiences with this. We recently got some amazing feedback on how we are doing our podcast, what you would like to hear more about, how we can be in even more alliterative and how we're addressing the topics and descriptive on them. We love it all. Please keep it coming. Our expert guests today are Dr. Theo Tsatsidis, a neuroscientist and brain training expert. He is also the founder of The Leap Center, a personal development company dedicated to translating the best in psychological science into effective success strategies. And we're also joined today by Dr. John Arden, whose work focuses on the intersection of neuroscience and psychotherapy. His latest book, Mind, Brain, Gene, provides insights into how today's psychotherapy necessitates the integration of the mind and body instead of the past practice of compartmentalization of mental health and physical health. This book contributes to the sea change in how we conceptualize mental health problems and their solutions. So Dr. John Arden, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and expertise in this background. Please tell us in a couple of minutes a little bit about your background and experience. Okay, well, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, I've been in the mental health system for roughly about 42 years in in different capacities. Um, I've um, been a um, director of programs, director of uh, tr- uh, both uh, programs and training programs, and, and also a neuropsychologist and regular psychologist. Most uh, recently, and I, I would say roughly about the last 20 years or so, I've been very interested in trying to normalize human experience by using the science out there. And the science that I'm talking about is not only psychology, but also neuroscience and another field called psychoneuroimmunology, which is the interaction between the mind and the brain and the immune system. And most recently, my book, Mind, Brain, Gene, covers those feedback loops. So how does that relate to public speaking? Because all those feedback loops 
are incredibly important. How your brain, how your mind, how your body interacts and, and actually hopefully facilitates uh, adaptation to whatever challenges are in front of you is really what we're talking about with respect to public speaking. Great. great. I, I'd, I'd love to jump into this topic of fear. Uh, we all know the data that says that 75% of the population has a fear of public speaking. As coaches, Tim and I have experienced ourselves. We, we both have gone through this, but we've also experienced the people that we coach who immediately say, I'm terrified of doing this. I'm afraid of this. And we, we really try to dig in to understand what the fear is. And we often wonder, is the fear more a fear of being judged? Is the fear more their own, they're more introverted and they're uncomfortable in the situation? So I'd like to start with this question, given your expertise. Do you believe there is a difference between a phobia and a fear? Or are they the same thing? Well, I think it's a matter of degree. And as we were uh, talking uh, earlier before we uh, went on the air here, uh, I'm a very strong critic of the medical model, the way we've over-pathologized some of these concepts. You know, is, is there a legitimate fear? Well, what the heck does that mean? Uh, well, do we have some anxiety? Well, that's a different concept. So I was saying earlier that I, like you, uh, had tremendous fear of public speaking. And now I've given, oh, maybe 3,000 uh, seminars in, a, in the next five months. I'll be in five different countries and uh, giving presentations and all that. If I would have thought about doing that roughly about 20 years ago, I, it would have given me incredible anticipatory anxiety. So what was that anticipatory anxiety that we could call fear? Well, uh, it was that I perhaps might make a lot of mistakes uh, and uh, somebody might see that I'm anxious while I'm making the mistakes. And what I realized after a period of time was that as long as I learn to be a human being, express enthusiasm and have a knowledge base about what I'm talking about, I got out of the way. So no longer was it really about a performance. It was more about communicating information that I was enthusiastic about. And I needed a certain degree of anxiety to be able to do that. And as I was saying earlier, uh, well, off air, uh, what I, uh, having no anxiety is what we call death. Right. So you want to have some anxiety. <laughs> it allows you to rise to the challenge that, that are in front of you. And so really uh, public speaking uh, presentations is about modulating your anxiety to the situation at hand. So I love this. Right. I love this conversation we're having because when you talk about how, you know, as long as I convey enthusiasm and what they're really there for, the audience is really listening for is my message. They want to hear the topic. They're not really there for me. And I'm intrigued by this because I think that there's a, fundamental piece to presentation skills that we as the speakers, the ones who are conveying the message, we to a degree have a certain level of control 
over how that message comes across. So the idea of as long as I'm enthusiastic, that that anxiety that drives the behavior to push through can manifest itself in ways that for some people is very distracting to the audience. And by, here's a great example. You can have somebody uh, up there on the stage who is a great speaker and passionate, right? You can hear the passion in their voice, but you see their arms flailing all over the place. And that's sort of their pathway to release that anxiety, but it's uncontrolled. It's not regulated in any way. And what I know about coaching people is unregulated, it then becomes overwhelming. And then it breaks down their articulation and they start to make more mistakes like you're saying. And I think that it's an interesting concept you talk about, you know, using that anxiety to harness the message. But at the same time, while you have to have some of it, too much of it without a, a mechanism to control it can just make you go down the rabbit hole and be in a bad place. And then you are more focused on how they perceive you and not the message. Exactly. And, and so there's got to be some balance there. Uh, and you use the word regulation uh, as, as opposed to just being totally out there flailing your arms all over the place. And so let me uh, uh, first uh, use the metaphor of skiing because I'm looking up at the ski resort from where I'm sitting right now. And nice. I love to ski and I was skiing earlier. And so um, uh, we often say you lean into the turn. You don't sit back on your skis. Why do you not want to sit back on your skis? Because that's your impulse when you're first learning is to sit back on your skis. Oh, my God, this is a steep slope. Well, what happens is you fall. And so if you lean into the turn instead of fight it or overregulate, or on the other hand, if you're not balanced on your skis and you're totally uh, busting down the slope, you're going to run into a tree and die. <laughs> and so. It's, it's really about balance. And so if you don't mind uh, using uh, uh, some neuropsychology to describe this. Okay. So you Please. have two hemispheres. If you have two hemispheres, right? Uh, so you have a right hemisphere, a left hemisphere. And we know now that people that suffer from anxiety and, and depression uh, have overactive right prefrontal cortexes, you know, the front side, front part of the brain on the right side is overactive relative to the left. And how do you get out of that? Well, first of all, let me describe what happens when you have overactive right prefrontal cortex. You avoid what makes you anxious and you withdraw when you're depressed. And when you avoid what makes you anxious, we've known this for roughly 50 years in psychology, you end up developing what we call an anxiety disorder. So in other words, you just paint yourself into the corner and you make your right prefrontal cortex move more over anxious. So what have we known in psychology uh, in terms of therapy uh, for half a century? Well, exposure is really the, the paradigm here. In other words, the way to get out of anxiety is to expose yourself to what you've been anxious about as long as it's not dangerous. In other words, if you're anxious about going to Kandahar, Afghanistan, good, don't go. <laughs> but if you're anxious about walking down through your park uh, and you don't go, when you know that is, you know, generally a nice day and there are a number of people out there Sunday afternoon and all that, 
then you need to go because then you're going to balance out the two hemispheres. So what we do know is leaning into the turn, I was using the skiing uh, metaphor earlier, activates your left prefrontal cortex so that you can balance out the two sides. So you don't want to uh, fly through the trees, so to speak, right. um, uh, and go or go to Kandahar, Afghanistan, because you could say, you know, geez, I'm I'm fearless. I don't really care uh, about you know those those Taliban hoodlums. They're not going to get me. You know, uh, well, uh, we we also call that adolescence. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, in other words, a certain amount of you could say fear. We don't want to call it fear. We call it caution. That's different. Fear is a loaded term. Caution is a little bit more balanced. And so caution allows you the capacity to kind of read the situation. Should I do this? Should I not do this? And mm -hmm. some people that are in a habit of avoiding what makes them anxious always think they shouldn't do it, like mm -hmm. public speaking. Um, when in fact, it's it's a really a, a normal concern that we all have. Well, not so all, I, I, but I roughly about eighty percent. Go ahead. I, I want to go back to the roots of this because everything that you're saying makes complete sense, and it really aligns with what we professionally know to be true, and certainly what we've you know all read and in. in the literature out there around this topic. But I want to go back to where it all begins, because this idea of anxiety, right, we all suffer from, everybody has some level of anxiety, to your point, maybe it's, you know, doing something that feels extreme, right? I know for me, for instance, I have been terrified of heights since as far back as I can remember. I remember when I was eight years old, I was taking one of those little bucket uh, trams at Bush Gardens in Florida, and I sat on the floor of the car and cried, like hysterically crying, because I was so afraid. And of course, my fear was, you know, I'm going to fall to my death or whatever it might be. Yet I could sit inside of an airplane and have no anxiety whatsoever. So, somewhat of a of a very uh, specific phobia as it pertains to heights. I am now much much older than that, and still, when I walk up a flight of stairs in an open grate staircase, I still, my knees get wobbly and I feel a level of anxiety around it that no exposure is going to help me with. And that's been there my whole entire life. As uh, Like I said, as far back as I can remember, I had a very conscious awareness and I see it in both of my children. They, they experience the same thing. When I think about the anxiety related and, and one of the reasons why I asked about a phobia versus a fear, when I think about the anxiety related to public speaking, for instance, I wonder what happens from being a young child to an older child or a young adult where that fear really starts manifesting itself. And, you know, from my vantage point, it's always, it's always been about, well, when the realization sets in of what's happening, that I'm being judged and that makes me really uncomfortable versus when I'm fearless as a child and I will, you know, do anything and I don't worry about whether I don't have the uh, the understanding that um, somebody might not like what I'm doing or think my singing voice is not very good or I don't really dance very well because everybody says to a three-year-old or a five-year-old, you're wonderful, you're fantastic, keep going. And then when you're eight, 10, 12, 15 years old, then you start getting critiqued. 
But does something happen in the brain? Does something change that brings on that anxiety? Or is it truly a, uh, a relationship with the external factors, the feedback that we're getting or the way we're being treated? What's your thoughts around what happens with that evolution and how that fear or that anxiety starts to evolve? Well, let me uh, uh, respond to it by saying both. <laughs> so you said <laughs> something happened in your brain or is it your experience in the environment? It's both because the brain is actually a amazing adaptation organ. And so let, let me, uh, if you uh, permit me uh, a little bit more neurology here. So there's sure. an area of the brain called the amygdala. It's it, it, for your listeners, you might just call it Amy, or or actually somebody back in 1820 thought it looked like an almond, so that's the Greek word Latinized for almond. So you can say, okay, there's an almond in the brain. And most species have an amygdala, and it's a threat detector. It's not a fear module. And in fact, not far from you, uh, there's a great neuroscientist, uh, Joe Ledoux at NYU, that's done, oh, good uh, 40 years of research on the amygdala. Uh, and he, in his most recent book, and you might want to uh, uh, interview him as well, his most recent book was called Anxious. Uh, and so it's, it's a topic that uh, uh, is relevant to our discussion here. And he says in, a, uh, in many ways, and most neuroscientists believe him, uh, that fear is a construction by the cortex, meaning your higher order thinking. So it's not your amygdala. In other words, do you, do you have legitimate fear? Well, what is legitimate fear? It's really based on your prior experience. So uh, one of the things that I've done over the last number of years is spent a lot of time in, in various areas of the world, like uh, the Middle East, we are training the aid workers of Syrian refugees, and West Asia, the Afghan government service workers, and I'm going to a torture and trauma center in a couple of weeks down in Sydney. And so when a person has fear based on their trauma, well, that's a whole different story. Uh, meaning, well, you could ride along through your childhood, no big problem, but now you get your village bombed out, you know, by the uh, Assad government in Syria, and somehow you make it over the, you know, the Turkish border and, and you're a refugee and all that. Do you have fear of, let's say, firecrackers or loud noises? Sure. Your threat detection system is over-operative, right? So, and now you create a larger spectrum of fears, anything, any uh, uh, environment that might replicate your earlier environment. In other words, crowded scenes and all that. So after a while, your brain adapts in a, you could say, pathological way based on those experiences. Perhaps earlier in your life, you might have experienced that, you know, that you're describing being down in Florida and, and having some uh, 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 un very uncomfortable feelings, and then later starting to think that you have um, um, fear of heights. Well, your cortex is involved in that process. You know, oh, yes, I do have fear of, uh, of heights. Um, and, well, a certain amount of Fear of heights is a good thing because you don't want to be falling. Right. I used to be a rock climber and, a, and a, um, a mountain climber. And a certain amount of fear is a good thing because otherwise you're going to fall off the, the rock face. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a matter of learning 
over a period of time. Now, now you said earlier, uh, uh, Tammy, that uh, no amount of exposure is going to uh, change that. Well, uh, with all due respect, I don't believe that. <laughs> Uh, and, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure, given the circumstances, it just doesn't feel that way. And I'm not saying you're way. not going to have some anxiety. That's okay. <laughs> but but to feel that you have like a total fear, a paralyzing fear, fear of heights, that's impractical. And your brain isn't uh, an organ that uh, ultimately uh, is an impractical organ. In other words, you can adapt to reasonably um, safe conditions. And so when we say, what's the difference between a phobia and a fear? Well, phobia is when it gets uh, overly pathologicalized, so to speak. You know, in other words, now you spend a whole lot of time avoiding anything that resembles that problem, uh, which well, let's say fear of heights. So me as a rock climber or something in my youth. Uh, if I had a fear of heights and, and I'd go, oh my God, I'm not even going to go to the rail uh, and look over the edge here. And I keep on painting myself into a corner. And when I'm watching a movie, oh my God, I've got to turn away because those people are flying or jumping out of airplanes right. or whatever. And then I just start building this whole pattern around avoidance. And your brain adapts. In other words, your cortex, which is your thinking part of your brain, comes up with all sorts of strategies around how you can avoid and construct your whole environment to avoid things that make you feel uncomfortable. And that's painting yourself into a corner. So I think that's you kind of, I, th I think ahead, that's Jim, when you think about, you know, as we were having this conversation and you were talking about exposures, John, and I sat here and think about all the people in my mind that I've, worked with over the years and you hear them say, I've done it. I do it all the time. I've done it again and again and again, and I'm still terrified of it. I'm still at ground zero with how I feel and I can't reconcile it, but I do it all day long. That's part of my job. It's something I have to do. So the exposure is there. Why do you think people don't move the needle after the exposure to, as you said, right? It's it's good to have some because it motivates you, but also keeping it in perspective that not every situation means you're going to fall off a cliff. Maybe riding a roller coaster isn't going to kill you, but standing on top of a skyscraper could you know, be really risky. But if exposure is a big piece of this, and for those folks out there that have exposure all the time and still come back to the foundational place of terrified emotions or reactions to presenting... Why don't they move the needle? Is that where training or some other element comes into play? Uh, certainly training and, and um, uh, graduated uh, learning is, is important. But let me, let me uh, say that I think we're stuck in a binary here. So let me use chronic pain as an example, and then we'll move back to anxiety. Since the late 1970s, all the chronic pain programs, certainly in the, in the system I uh, used to work in, in Kaiser Permanente, um, we don't work with people to have no pain. It's a ridiculous idea. You right. know, uh, so we, we don't say, and I, and I was trained in hypnosis and spent a lot of time doing that uh, sort of thing, especially in the 1980s. We don't uh, put a person into a trance and say, now you feel no pain. No. The reality is... Uh, Feeling a little pain is not a bad thing. So what we've done over the last 40 years or so is help people notice 
different degrees of pain. Oh, it's level five now. No, it's down to three. Oh, right. it's eight. It's down to two. Same thing for anxiety and anxiety-related public speaking, whatever. Uh, and so what we're talking about is that range. When you get into a binary where you go, either I have no pain or I have severe pain. It's zero or it's 10. You're always going to have 10. And so if a person says, oh, I'm back to that, to use your phrase, I'm back to that fundamental. Well, it's a, it's a construct that, that is too absolute. And it works certainly within a, in a uh, simplistic frame. Uh, that unfortunately, again, in the, in healthcare, we have been into much of the 20, uh, 20th century, whereby we were thinking, we've been thinking, oh my God, I have this bad gene, this diagnosis, uh, and what I need is this medication because I have this missing brain chemical or, or whatever. It just didn't work. In the 21st century, in healthcare is totally different. Now we're looking at adaptation. And we're looking at how the immune system is involved, how genes can be turned on and off, how your brain adapts over a period of time. And all these feedback loops are operative together. What we want to do is get them to work together. I'm processing what you're saying, and it makes me think about incremental reward, right? What's the, uh, uh, do you have some thoughts around the reward mechanism in our head like that helps us push that needle, if you will, right? So it's not an absolute. What, what is it that an incremental reward system does to help somebody move that needle a little bit? So if, I, if I'm learning how to ride a bike and the, you know, the first stage is that my dad is holding on to my seat as I go along and won't let go, don't let go. But then now let's see if you can do it from the end of the driveway to the end of the block all by yourself without dad holding the end of your bike. And okay, now I'm a little more, little more confident in this. Well, next step is removing the training wheels and you just have two wheels on there. And can I do that in the driveway? I, I'm t- trying to tie in how do we, how do we develop those reward mechanisms or uh, situations in our mind that helps us push beyond the exposure element. Uh, well, you're always doing, uh, I don't want to overuse the term exposure, but uh, let's rather use the term that you just used, and that was uh, incremental rewarding, and use the paradigm that you described uh, with dad and, and you learning how to ride the bicycle. Uh, and gradually, you seeing that you're increasingly better able to go for longer distances of time without falling over. Uh, and, uh, and then dad, of course, is going, great. Oh, great, Tim. You did. Oh, this is great. No, that's okay. You fell down. We'll get you up again. And then you're, you're actually, uh, being rewarded by your increasing confidence because you're seeing yourself go a little further without falling down, so to speak. And, and if I can add in a little of the neuropsychology here. So this, if, if we're really talking about, let's say, riding a bicycle. So there's this area of the brain called the basal ganglia, which is kind of like a primitive uh, uh, motoric uh, network in your brain. As you learn to do something like ride a bicycle, uh, later on in life, you'll be able to ride a bicycle without thinking about riding a bicycle right. because it's non-conscious, right? Whenever you start to think about riding a bicycle, because the three of us are adults now, we, we overthink about riding a bicycle. Now we're going to wobble 
You get the idea? So after a while, it becomes a habit. And that habit developed incrementally over time. So let's let's take uh, uh, um, you know uh, professional sports. Uh, these guys go to the batting cages right before the game um, in your area, maybe you know the Yankees and the Mets or, or whatever. And so they and their coach says, "Don't go in there thinking about your swing. Make it a nice, sweet swing. In other words, don't overthink." And don't interrupt. Unfortunately, what happens when we overthink, then we start interrupting. So let's move this to public speaking. So if I'm standing up there giving a presentation, like I've got uh, four next week that I've got to do in Reykjavik, Iceland. If I start thinking about the way I'm presenting, I'm going to overthink and now start stuttering, or I don't necessarily stutter, but start tripping on my words. Right. Uh, uh, if I just roll into it and the concept is I'm going to be thinking about what I want to say, not the way I'm saying it. If I'm too into the way I'm saying it, then I'm going to overthink. And uh, that is going to interrupt the flow. And so a course practice is part of it. I don't mean practicing uh, giving a particular speech. That's good, too. But practicing the knowledge base. So every time you speak about a particular subject, you're not going to use the exact words each time. If you're so stuck on the exact words each time, it's a teleprompter. And most of us speak uh, without a teleprompter, right? Right, and right. So in a sense, what you're doing is you're, you're, you have the, uh, the concepts that you're trying to get across because you have a thorough knowledge base, not an impeccable, because nobody knows everything about the subject that they're speaking sure. about, uh, but you have a, more, a, a greater knowledge base than the people that you're standing in front of. Sometimes there are people in the audience that have a greater knowledge base than you, the speaker. That's okay. Yeah. And if you kind of roll into it, and that's what I often think, uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm speaking about these large, you know, subjects like, you know, the brain and the immune system and all that. I know there's going to be somebody in there that does research in, in a particular area. I'm Mr. Broadbase, and they're going to have some technical knowledge about some issue. And then I go, wow, thank you. That's a really good point that you're raising. Rather than, oh, he exposed me for the fraud that I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's too binary again. Rather, if I'm rolling into it, meaning, in effect, I'm in here drawing these connections, these broad-based connections. And some of you, in fact, might even have incredible esoteric knowledge about some of the minutia that I'm talking about. That's great. We're collaboratives. We're collaborators here. That's okay. So you've got to get yourself out of the way, essentially, is what I'm saying, and roll into, like bike riding, uh, the uh, experience that's in front of you. Well, I love your analogy about the batting cage, right? There's, uh, there's the idea that you, you get into that batting cage or even on the slopes, uh, take any sport, and the idea is the more you practice it and the more you master the mechanics and the maneuvering around it, uh, you, you become an expert at it. It becomes the unconscious. It moves from, you know, th- 
mentally thinking about it maybe 90% of the time to just a 20%, oh, wait a minute, I got to remember to do that. And I, I think that's what lets the content be the driver, quite frankly, from a presentation skills perspective, that there are mechanics to it that do impact how we just as a species feel comfortable around another person and how we assess them because we are judging all the time uh, what that interaction is like, in my opinion. There's a level or a degree of, of comfort that I'm going to assess in that interaction with, with somebody, whether it's over the phone like now or casual conversation with a teacher or somebody you even meet on the street. Uh, we're getting signals from them. And I do think that there's a part where you can practice those mechanics to deliver the right signal that makes somebody else more comfortable. Exactly. And sometimes those uh, people that are uncomfortable are distracted by other things going on in their mind. You know, maybe they had an argument with their partner the previous night or whatever. So when I'm giving a presentation, um, I don't only look at the people that are eagerly looking at what I'm uh, what I'm talking about, my slides and writing and taking notes and all that. I actually focus on the people that are less attentive. And in fact, I even kind of walk up to them and somehow make interaction with them. And if they're looking at their cell phone, I might even talk about uh, uh, people that look at cell phones. <laughs> I'm not saying I humiliate people. Uh, I do it in a very tactful way. And so, in effect, what I'm doing is I'm leaning into it. If I'm only looking at the people that are smiling and nodding and all that, then uh, that other group are, are really not accessible to me. Yes. And it, 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 it Fascinating. Feels, yes, I love this. And I know we could keep going on and we have to wrap it up. But that comment right there, I believe, feeds into how that fear builds. And we hear this a lot. Don't we coach to it as well. If you just rely on the people who are smiling at you, you're alienating everybody else. But what you're really doing is avoiding the anxiety that that interaction is causing you because you don't feel like that's the interaction you should be having. You want a different one. And uh, I, I always like to flip the stage a little bit and say, you know, that person who you're looking at that is smiling and nodding their head at you could very well be giving you a signal, stop staring at me because you've been looking at me the whole time. <laughs> That's good. That's a nice <laughs> summation and, and very nice rephrasing, Tim. That's great. Uh, John, I, I we do have to wrap up and I want to thank you because you made, a, no pun intended, you made my brain bigger today. <laughs> this is really, really a fascinating conversation. And um, I, you're, you're challenging my hypotheses for sure, which Tim is grateful for. Um, but it's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. And I love how you articulated this as uh, something that is pathological or can become pathological but the idea of how anxiety develops. Um, and I think that's really the interesting part of this conversation. And when we think about how, it's very informative to us when we think about how we develop the work that we're doing to help to lessen that anxiety, because that's really our goal. At the end of the day, you know, our, our, our tagline is we're building a world of more competent speakers. And to, in order for someone to be confident, as you put it, at skiing, you have to lean into it. You have to embrace it and you have to give in a little bit to your anxiety, much like I did the time that I spent with Tim 
And yes, I, I was willing to put myself through that experience and admittedly said it was more torturous than childbirth. But upon reflection, I was willing to do it. And, and as a result of that, it enabled me to kind of face the dragon, right? Like look at the, look at the anxiety and understand how to embrace it in a way. And no, no medication was necessary. I was able to do it all on my own. So I'm very proud of that. But this was, this was truly, truly fascinating. I think, I think I wish more people would get to the science behind it because I think it would help them. And I hope that through this podcast, the folks that listen to this and will certainly be talking about this for a long time to come, really, uh, for them to really understand what might be at the root of it, because most people say that it's, they, they'd be fine if they knew what they were talking about and they don't really understand what is causing their, their anxiety. So really, really appreciate your time and, and your perspectives on this. And I love the fact that you can speak from personal experience as someone who did have anxiety around it and now is a very prolific speaker. And I hope I have the opportunity at some point to come listen to you speak because I think it would be really fascinating. Really appreciate your background and insights. Great conversation and really appreciate your time. Well, I enjoyed talking to both of you. And, and uh, uh, I'm very uh, impressed with what you're doing and I, I wish you the best. Hi, Dr. Theo. It's really great to have you on our show today. You know, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about your neuroscience work, your relationship with public speaking, and how you came into this area of expertise? Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, <clears throat> my journey started back when I was uh, in, in my doctoral program where I was doing training in psychotherapy and psychology. And um, I became very interested in brain injury and brain injury rehabilitation. So I started getting involved in uh, facilities that work with people with brain injuries. Uh, and I really was very fascinated by what the brain can do and what the brain cannot do when somebody has an injury. Uh, what I really learned from that is that there are so many ways for us to train our brains and the same principles can be applied to people who have a brain injury as to those who do not have a brain injury. So I continued on. I've done a lot of research and a lot of uh, clinical work uh, with people with brain injury. I focused primarily on the executive functions, and I'm saying that because that term has so many meanings to people. Uh, and more specifically, I focused on the emotion regulation aspect of executive function, which is how we manage to understand our emotions and control them so that they serve um, serve our goals be better. And um, then I thought, well, it's time to take this knowledge to a broader audience because a lot of people uh, have the interest to learn more about their brains and how they work and how to make them work better for them but they don't have access to the knowledge or they rely on a lot of tips and hacks that come from secondhand uh, information. So I thought, well, here's my chance to share with people. And that also uh, got me interested in public speaking, where I noticed that coming from the academic world, uh, you know, academics are 
they speak a lot, but they're not great speakers. Uh, the, the bar is, is very low. And uh, I, was, I was hearing a lot of uh, good feedback about how I am, oh, you're a good speaker, you're a good presenter. And then I thought, well, if they say that, I must really not be that great. So I really have to. <laughs> <laughs> so I wondered if you were going to go there. Is it really the opposite of what they're saying? This was the, the uh, uh, you know, the epiphany for me when, when I, I told a friend, you know, there's this really great public speaking training program that I'm thinking of, of, of uh, joining. And he said, you don't need that. You're good. And then I thought, okay, I definitely need that. I ignored his advice. I signed up. And that opened up a whole new world for me where I bring in my ideas and my science uh, and I meet, they meet up with uh, techniques that come from uh, performance and the theater and public speaking. And that creates a much better structure and a good framework for those ideas to come to life. And that's how I also became involved in public speaking. Fascinating. That It's so interesting that you naturally made that connection that people don't necessarily correlate, right? You know, people understand this idea that they have fear. And I, I've shared, and as, as part of this podcast, as we've talked to different guests, I've talked about the fact that I personally struggled with it for many, many years and, and didn't do uh, perhaps, didn't come at it the same approach that you did. I came at it by saying I just have to tackle it, right? I have to, I have to go head first into it. I, I shared a story recently that I also have a crippling fear of heights. And yet that's not a fear <laughs> that I've chosen <laughs> to take on. I'm not jumping on roller coasters, I'm not going bungee jumping. But when it came to public speaking, obviously it was a it was a big impediment to my own life because I couldn't do my job. But I think it's interesting that you came at it the way that you did and made that that connection. And I don't think most people think about it that way. So let, let's talk about fear overall and mm -hmm. how our brains deal with that and, and your sort of hypothesis around how public speaking and, and the brain kind of work together. Share a little bit about your thoughts around that. Absolutely. I think that's a good place to start, to talk about fear in general, uh, because fear of public speaking is, is just a specific instance of the general fear that we experience. And uh, by the way, I share your fear of heights. I can stand in a second floor balcony and my knees will give out. <laughs> 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 and I see, Are you bungee jumping to I, overcome your fear? I see no reason to that. Same. I don't, same. Think, I don't think bungee We're jumping is... Risk <laughs> versus reward. Totally. <laughs> uh, I will try zip lining at some point in my life. I know that. Okay. Well, then you are a braver person than I am. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about uh, fear and, and emotions in general. Fear is a, a subjective experience that is produced in the brain. And what we know now is that fear is, or any emotion is a combination of physiological events and mental events. So in essence, where our body meets our mind and creates whatever subjective sense we, we create. It used to be thought that, well, emotions are in the uh, lower, less evolved parts of the brain, and they make us uh, react in certain ways that are automatic. And there is a certain truth to that, 
like fear of heights, for example, it's, it's not something that you cause, it's something that happens. Uh, but at the higher level, because we live in a kind of complex social world, our fears have become more evolved as well. And they are attached to specific situations, specific um, demands, specific people. Uh, so what the experience of fear is then is a physiological arousal uh, that for some people they may experience it as uh, increased heart rate or a shortness of breath or just a general tension in their body or butterflies in the stomach or uh, they're uh, sweating. Uh, it has, you know, different people have different physiological reactions. And then you overlay on that a mental process that could include beliefs about yourself, uh, interpretations of the situation of what's going on, uh, past memories, assumptions that you make, and that creates that complete sense of the emotion that we experience in each situation. That's interesting, and I wonder, where does the fear stem from? So why am I afraid of heights, but Tim isn't? Is that our brain chemistry? You know, obviously we're, I have two children and both of them are afraid of heights. Is that something that I've passed on to them? Or is there some stimulus that at some point in time that kicks in? Fear can be both genetic, biological, so drives that we carry uh, on with us and we pass down from generation to generation. Uh, for example, you know, the, the fear of um, snakes and spiders um, is one such fear that, we tend to have automatically. But there's another level, which is experience. So uh, whereas some people at the sight of a snake on TV even will, will start hyperventilating, there are snake handlers that you know can play soft music for snakes and the snakes will dance and they're totally fine with it. Uh, but they have a lot of experience with that. Uh, they have exposure. They know how to deal with it. They know what to do if the situation gets out of hand. And that's where it becomes uh, a little easier for them to not be captured by that sense of fear that people who don't have experience uh, do. At the same time, we all have a different physiology, right? Just like some people in the summer will sweat more than others, uh, and some people will go for a brisk walk and they will be out of breath despite their level of fitness, and other people can run miles and they won't, uh, their, their breathing won't change. Um, our physiology differs from person to person. And some people just generally have a more active physiology. It's a, I think it's a, a good way to describe it, that their uh, engine is revving up a little higher, which makes them more sensitive to the environmental stimuli Oh, that sounds so academic. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, things gotcha. in, right? <laughs> the things in their lives, the situations in their lives that they have uh, either uh, associated with fear from past experience or they expect something terrible will happen in that situation. Um, and the fear has a lot to do with the consequences that we expect as the outcome of being in a certain situation. Mm. You know what I love about this conversation is everything you said makes sense to me. <laughs> so first and foremost, that's a, that's a huge bonus for me right there. But I want to I, I challenge it a little bit and say that, look a little deeper into this and say, okay, let's take the idea of snakes, right? Mm -hmm. If my mom and I were watching TV and she saw a snake on the TV, I could physically see her cringe. 
she would say something probably inappropriate, cringe, revolt against the whole thing. And I can admit I probably adopted some of my feelings towards snakes because of her reaction. Just completely adopted. Maybe on my own, I would have felt that way too. But public speaking isn't something we actively talk about. We don't just go, oh, oh my gosh, I hate speaking in public because I'm watching a show or someone doing a pitch and bringing that to the conscious level of being able to have feelings guilty by association. Right. right. No visceral reaction no to visceral it reaction. when you see somebody. It's not, you know, it's not topic at the dinner table. How was your public speaking today? Right. Did you hate it as much as I did? <laughs> and so I'm really fascinated. I, I agree with what you said, and I'm fascinated to dig a little deeper and just kind of theorize mm. how did we as a society become terrified of public speaking? Uh, I, you know, we all have our own stories as kids mm -hmm. growing up, what it was like, you know, in eighth grade, our first experience, or perhaps what we saw happen to someone else in our class and the way they reacted. You, what are your thoughts on where just all of this angst and anxiety comes from? It's, it's very interesting that you said that uh, you don't sit around the dinner table talking about fear of public speaking. And I imagine you talk a lot about snakes and how you're scared of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to the dinner table. So it actually happens. There's some truth there. Because we are farm people. We talk a lot about that. Oh, okay. Talk about snakes. That's great. Uh, I once saw, I live in New York City, so I once saw a tiny little snake that looked no bigger than a big worm. And I was so fascinated. I started taking videos of it. Uh, poor thing disappeared. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's how... That's how we learn. We learn, uh, and again, this is where someone's physiology and someone's, um, I want to call it um, mental strength that includes anything from how they think about themselves um, in relation to others as well, uh, come to play. Uh, there were as we were, when we were kids, there were the kids that just could not wait to grab the microphone and uh, perform in front of the whole class or the school or recite a poem or whatever it was that um, we do at that age. And there were others that were just completely comfortable sitting down and never having to get up. Uh, and I, without having done any research on that or any um, further study, that I think that those who were uh, more comfortable with the performance element earlier on are more comfortable in front of other people as well. Uh, I think what makes public speaking scarier uh, for people it, it is the, uh, the fact that they perceive public speaking as something different than what it is. I like your approach when you often say that anytime we open our mouth to speak with anybody, we in essence are doing public speaking. The only time we are not doing public speaking is when we talk to ourselves. Uh, but people think about public speaking. And sometimes I have a big audience then too, just to be <laughs> All the voices in your head? All the voices <laughs> in my head. Mine always agree with me. I don't know about yours. <laughs> You're so lucky. Mine never do. That's a whole other podcast. I want to know how you do that. Um, so uh, the, the image that they have of public speaking is somebody in front of a big audience, uh, an unfriendly audience uh, with the microphone where they have to do something to impress, to convince, uh, to be liked. And I think that contributes to the fear because 
if we go back to what I said before about the consequences, um, what are the consequences if I if I make a mistake? If they realize that I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm a fraud, I'm an imposter, I don't belong there, uh, I can't articulate a word, uh, I have nothing interesting to say. Uh, all of those things in in conjunction create this sense of fear of public speaking. Uh, to me, it's interesting how many people report public speaking as something that they're afraid of. And I think that for most people, they're not at a position or uh, because of, of where they are in life that they're going to be on a stage speaking to people. But they will um, have to be in front of a small or a large audience, whether it's at a meeting at work or if they're teachers or professors, they're going to be in front of a classroom. Uh, at some point in, in you know in a community meeting, they will have to speak up in public, and you know the mere action of taking the stand and and sharing your opinions, especially if you're not used to it, uh, brings that fear of how are other people going to react to me? Um, are they going to shut down my ideas? Am I going to say something that offends others? Not a lot of people care about that anymore, but that's a different story. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So again, it goes back to the combination of what do I expect will happen uh, if I get up in front of people and um, what, uh, what am I feeling in this moment, this, this, this anxiety that uh, it can, can make you feel very, very uncomfortable. Uh, it's really interesting what you're saying right now. And I have a, 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 an intriguing example of that that fascinates me. I have two kids, they're in high school, and I have a number of friends who are teachers. And one of my friends who I am I'm really close with, I happened to go to back to school night and sat in on her class. And this is a teacher that otherwise is incredibly well-regarded by her students. She's an English teacher. Mm -hmm. And when it came to speaking to the parents, she was a hot mess. And by all measures, she is public speaking all day long, right? Because she is teaching classes. She's constantly getting new students coming into her class and she's perfectly comfortable doing it. But the minute that the stakes get higher because there are parents that she's not accustomed, all of her skills fall apart because in her mind, the perception is so different that she's going to be evaluated differently mm -hmm. by the parents. And I, I talked to her after this particular uh, meeting that I, that I uh, attended and I said to her, you know, what was going on? She's like, the parents terrify me. They scare me. The kids don't scare me. I know how to talk to kids. I don't know how to talk to adults. And I think that really uh, reinforces the point that you're making is that she's manifested in her head that the stakes are totally different when all these judgmental parents are sitting in the room and saying, you know, you're a terrible teacher. I don't like your syllabus. You're failing my kids. That's in her mind. But when the kids come in, they adore her and think she's a very effective teacher. So I, I really love this idea that we feed this message to ourselves and it's completely manufactured. Yeah, a lot of the research shows that uh, the making the shift from seeing public speaking as a forum where you will be evaluated by your audience to a situation where you're communicating with your audience makes a big difference. So in the case of speaking to students, you want them to learn something. So you share your knowledge with them. Uh, you uh, 
express some new concept that they didn't know before and you enjoy watching the process of them learning, even if they ask you questions, difficult questions. Uh, and with the parents, it's probably the opposite where this person feels evaluated about her job, about her ability to uh, follow the curriculum and offer the students as much as they can. And there will be people in the audience who are judgmental, who have uh, even even you can see that it, you can see the judgment in their face. <laughs> and people who have the fear of public speaking are probably a little bit more in their head in that moment, um, and also more attuned to the people who are going to show their um, displeasure or their uh, reaction uh, more than the people who are just, you know, neutrally listening to what they're saying. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I want to shift gears for a second. Uh, You wrote in a Psychology Today article that you don't believe that the fear is as great as people say. So we know that most of the data suggests that 75% of the population lists public speaking as their number one fear, and and you don't actually think that that is the case. I want to take you back thousands of years to a time when in ancient, well, you're Greek, right? So this is probably where your forefathers are from. (laughs) So in ancient Greece, what did people do, right? They went into the arena Mm -hmm. and they talked. That was how we communicated. That was our primary form of communication. And you had to do that, right? You had to be able to speak Um, Socrates, right, is our forefather of speaking. Mm -hmm. You had to be able to speak in order to get things done, in order to share your ideas. There was no other way of doing it. So I wonder when we look at where we are today, is there a change in our brain chemistry? Because environmentally, how we've had to survive, you know, the, the idea of, you know, once upon a time, cavemen went out and you know, beat animals and that's what we did to get our food. And now I walk into the grocery store and I can go buy meat and whatever I need. But do you think that, that because of we, we, our lives have changed, society has changed, that our brain chemistry changes? Well, what, what, you know, what are your thoughts around that? This is really, this is a, 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 one of those questions that makes you come up with so many theories and, and I love it. So <laughs> go for it. So here's what I picture. I picture a uh, situation where there is ancient Greece got talent. So you have Homer and you oh have other poets and they're all competing and then Homer wins and he gets to recite his Iliad and his <laughs> Odyssey <laughs> to the audiences. Um, just to make it a little more serious, I think, and, and I'm not sure again, because this is a, this is a very good question for research. Um, at that time, in ancient Greece, it wasn't everybody who lived in, 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 the, in the country or in the, city, uh, in the city-states that was participating either in the public affairs uh, or in the um, uh, agora, you know, the, uh, the, um, uh, the parliament, so to speak. Uh, it was a select group of people. And for them to be able to uh, orate, to gain power, they had to be good at public speaking. We don't know, because there were many strata in society then, how the people who weren't participating in the, in the common, in the public uh, affairs were faring in terms of public speaking. So there may be a segment of the population as well at those times that didn't have the opportunities or the need to be speaking in public. 
what happens now is that obviously we are, uh, there are many more of us around and there are many more opportunities that we have uh, where we are not necessarily uh, selected from early on, you're going to be this, you're going to be that, you're going to be a lawyer, you need to speak well uh, during litigation and you're going to be a a typist, so you just need to work on your dexterity. We have opportunities, and even within smaller professional groups, um, there are there are situations where you have to speak in public. And I think that's what makes it different now. It's that there are these situations, there are these opportunities, and we take them on. And we we have to be good at public speaking if we want to be able to. Uh, share and promote our ideas to be, be good at it, work to demonstrate our body of work, uh, and that's where the um, the fear of public speaking has become more common. I don't think it's that our brain chemistry has changed. Of course, it did, did change, but it's also that now we're encountering new situations. We live in a more um, demanding society, uh, and we also have more chances. We appreciate what good speaking can do for us. I also want to uh, point out that I love these surveys that show that uh, uh, public speaking is is uh, listed commonly uh, as a big fear, and people often mis- misinterpret that as it's people's biggest fear. It's not people's biggest fear. Uh, people report fears like uh, bioterror, uh, government corruption, um, uh, terrorist attacks as, as their biggest fears. Uh, and it makes you wonder, you know, those are life-threatening events. They really threaten your survival. Uh, I think public speaking made it in there because it's a situation that kind of like it's it's safe to be afraid of it because if you don't need to be speaking in public, uh, you can be afraid of it all you want. Just like I don't have to deal with snakes and that's why I like them. Right. Right. I like to watch them on TV. <laughs> <laughs> or you can record them on your phone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. From a distance. If I can take it, you know, I won't run away from it. <laughs> it's interesting that there's some irony to all of that and you've you've kind of made me switch my thinking very quickly, good persuasion there, that I guess in ancient Greece, there were a lot of farmers, right? So there were a lot of people who were um, agriculturists and didn't have to necessarily communicate to get their jobs done. And And so we don't really know, right? And ironically today, there's almost nobody in the professional world who doesn't need to speak to get their jobs done. I mean, even farmers need to communicate effectively to get their work done. So it, it's it's ironic that you you that was a time period where public speakers were so prominently featured. And when we think about the Socratic method of communication, I mean, that's where that all came from. And today we live in a world where people talk much more openly about this fear. Mm-hmm. And I think your theories are spot on because it is something, it's okay to be afraid of public speaking because I could avoid it maybe, or it, you know, I can do it and then I could say, well, I wasn't really good because I'm really afraid. So cut me a break. I have to do it because it, I need to do it for my job. But if I say that I'm afraid, it sort of gives me a little bit of an out and it's okay to be afraid because everybody's afraid. I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. We're all afraid to do it. We all get butterflies in our stomach before we have to get up and speak. So it seems like we've had a, we've had a kind of a interesting switch in dynamic mm-hmm. because it's so critical to our everyday lives. So I got to jump in on this. I know Tim, I, Tim's I, I, chomping at the bit here. I got to get my thought in on this one. <laughs> and, and, and then I want to share 
I want to shift gears to the flip side of it too. So thank you for this. I mean, I really, I've really enjoyed this conversation because I think it is thought provoking and fundamentally there, this question continues to boil up in our team, especially about the fear of public speaking and how did it originate and really how did it come to be what it is today? And I think it's interesting listening to your conversation. I now think about how hierarchical it was for those who were privileged, allowed to be uh, speaking in front of everyone and presenting, if you will, that there is a, it's a status level. It was a level of accomplishment. And we didn't really need to speak for ourselves because we had those speaking on our behalf. And I'm just curious to dig into this more another time, at another time, really about how did that actually evolve? Because I wonder if we just really created this awful dynamic that there are people who speak on our behalf and think of politics as Mm. politics started to come up. We didn't really share our voice. We weren't public about our opinions. And to your point, Dr. Theo, social media, new tools, new avenues to be able to express that. Now we're doing it. We have been doing it more and more and more. I guess the idea of we sort of self-created this problem in a really big way that really isn't doesn't have to be categorized as that big of a problem, but fundamentally it came from trusting others to speak on our behalf. So I didn't have to. Uh, so I don't an know. Interesting it's, point. it's something I want to, I want to talk about more, but I do want to shift gears a little bit to solutions. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about the problem and we've really been diving deep into that piece. There's something that you mentioned and I'm going to, I'm going to bring it up here shortly, but you know, we're coaches. I've been a coach for 20 years in communication skills and, we all sort of teach the same things. We teach them very differently when it comes to, uh, you know, presentation skills and leadership development, things like that. One of your recommendations in the Psychology Today article really sort of moved me a bit. And it's, you said, shift your focus from performance to communication. And I think that's such a really important point to make. We talk about the skills that you can employ to overcome your fear or to mask them or to reduce them in some way. And I thought it was really insightful of you to think about, don't think about it in terms of presenting or performance as much as you're having a communication, a dialogue, and that difference between one and the other. That, what other nice tips, how did, they, how did you come up with this point and what other great tips do you have that you would share with people? I goes back to what I was saying earlier about fear in general. And just like other emotions, fear is a is entails energy, emotional energy. And that emotional energy uh, is is actually helpful because it keeps you focused, it keeps you on task, it keeps you um, motivated and energized and it allows you to put effort into something. So I think that, um, if people feel that little bit of anxiety before they appear to speak in public, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's going to that's going to be helpful. Just like we know with anxiety, the inverse U law, which is says that at at um, medium levels of anxiety, performance uh, the, the outcomes of performance are better. At higher levels, the outcomes are worse. And of course, at lower levels, then there's no reason you don't you don't uh, you don't apply yourself when you don't feel that energy that motivates you. So one one way to think about it is that, okay, this is giving me energy. I got to put the energy toward the work that I need to do. 
Um, now, also rethinking of this as I need to share my ideas because I believe that I have something interesting or important uh, to, to share uh, and I want people to understand it better, is going to also shift the way I prepare my speech. I think that public speaking, the way the in, in its loftiest uh, sense that I'm standing in front of a group of people and I'm speaking about something, uh, whether it's relevant to my business or I make a pitch or I share a new idea, uh, is uh, something that requires a lot of thought ahead of time and a lot of preparation to make sure that it's crafted in a way that is going to be understood and accepted and challenged, right? Because I need to leave my argument open to challenge so that I can improve it. And then if I communicate it with people, I see their reactions and I can go back and think more about my work. Uh, have I... Uh, have I thought this through very well? Did I take the steps necessary to prepare? Did I articulate my ideas in a way that are not clear or did not make sense? Did my metaphors hit the spot? Uh, and that that's another way of thinking about fear as motivating is that it helps you put the work that you need to put in. I see public speaking the same way as I see writing an, an article or a book that a lot of people are going to read and you need to make sure that it's not sloppy, it's not thoughtless, it's not disorganized, that you make good choices in terms of the content, the uh, stories, the the word crafting itself. I, You know, along those lines, I loved watching your video where you talked about um, how the brain is wired for success, yet we are not successful. And I think this really plays into what we're talking about here. I really do love the idea of embracing the fear and using it as a motivator. I, I know for me, that is 100% my approach. Like fear charges me up, like give me, give me a little bit of anxiety and I will be the most successful human being in the world. So I embrace anxiety around, around that. Mm -hmm. But I too am a New Yorker, so that's kind of how we're hardwired. Uh, but uh, talk about this idea of success because the reality is everything that we've been talking about is that we need, in order to be successful, we need to be able to communicate effectively. It is probably the most critical skill because we can have lots of ideas and you could be this amazing uh, neuroscientist and yeah, you could probably work in a lab and do all these things, but at some point you have to communicate what you've researched or what you've learned or whatever your big breakthroughs are, whether you write it or you tell it to somebody, you have to do it. So talk to us a little bit about how the brain is wired for success and yet we disrupt that and many of us are actually not successful. The idea behind that statement that I made has to do with the, uh, the wiring of the brain in a sense that one of our highest levels of cognitive uh, ability is the ability to set goals and pursue the goals and achieve the goals subsequently. So a lot of what we, we do in life is we set a goal, we set a purpose, and we, we then um, choreograph the actions that we need to take in order to achieve that goal. Now, a lot of times people tell me, ask me, well, why do we need to have goals? And I say, don't think of goals in the larger sense, the big picture sense, but think of goals as everyday things that you need to do 
to reach an, an outcome, reach a result that you need from things like, I'm, I need to make a phone call, I need to get watered, to I need to get to work on time, right? These are, these are small goals. And the brain is working toward helping us achieve these goals. It gets a little more difficult when the goals are bigger, when the actions that we need to take are multiple, and then there are different ways in which our own brain can sabotage our ability to take action toward completing these goals. And fear is one of them. Uh, and fear often manifests as self-doubt. And uh, I think that just to relate to public speaking a little bit, the people who are, uh, what separates people who have managed their, their fear of public speaking or leveraged their fear of public speaking and those who haven't is how they've dealt with the fear, how they have tackled it on, head on. They have uh, taken chances. They have taken risks. They have been able to live with the anxiety in the moment and say, I'm going to push through and I'm going to get past it. And then they get to the other side of it. And I don't say overcome fear or lose fear. I, I like to say manage or leverage because it's a protective mechanism. We don't want to lose it. Right, right. At the risk of taking this conversation sideways, I, <laughs> this is just making me think of something. And I, I'm curious if we can succinctly address this. So I, I, I'm really fascinated by what you're saying. And I, of course, have to apply this to myself and, and really process how I think about it. I know that, you know, I'm a type A person. I'm really driven. I, I look at, I, 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 I know that I'm wired for success and I know I don't, I don't succeed. I know where I stumble and, and get into trouble, but I also know that my goal is always, okay, I want to achieve this outcome. But take, I'm gonna take something very, very simple and I'm curious to know how this, how this manifests itself. One of the things that we talk about is practice, right? So I know that I want to be a better speaker and one of the best ways that I can become more confident and better at what I do is by practicing. Mm -hmm. If I've got a, you know, a big presentation coming up, I can rehearse it. If I'm trying to, if I want to do a TED talk, you know, I've, I've got to craft my message and do all those things. And we often equate this to exercise. So I'm going to use an example in my own life that completely fascinates me. I make a packed with myself that I'm going to get up at 5.30 every morning and spend 20 minutes exercising. What is it that we do to ourselves from the minute I go to bed at night to when that alarm goes off in the morning and I do not actually achieve that goal? This might be some personal therapy session that I need outside of this, but I'm, I'm curious and I know I'm not alone in this. But you know, when I think about success or our roadblocks to success. This is not a, a, a gigantic task. This is, I'm awake and I would sooner sit there and look at Instagram on my phone than actually get up and go downstairs and get on my Peloton. So what is happening? Why are we doing that to ourselves? Where, where does that roadblock come in? This is where we- I'm not being cheeky. I'm really being <laughs> serious about this. I feel your pain. <laughs> He's my spirit animal. <laughs> uh, no, uh, one of the most refreshing uh, uh, books that I've read um, recently, uh, I think it's, I think it's by Daniel Pink, but uh, I, it's called When, and it talks about uh, sort of like the the timing patterns, the diurnal patterns that we have. And you know, you often hear in 
self-help talks or in, in, you know, in blogs that give you like the five tips to become a better person, um, you hear that you got to wake up early in the morning and take advantage of the morning and be, you're more productive, you're more creative. And it, the research doesn't fully support that. And what it supports is that people have different sort of like diurnal patterns, that we have different uh, preferences. So I know for myself that I'm not a morning person. I never schedule appointments early in the morning. Uh, and I know that I'm not going to be as effective. I'm not going to be as attentive. I'm not going to be as productive with my ideas uh, as I would be later in the day. Uh, so it, it's almost like my brain works better that day. And what I need to do then is to adjust my day by observing and evaluating uh, over time what works best for me. And then I can create a schedule that facilitates my success. So going back to your question, uh, is, is the point, is the, the goal that you want to achieve to work out, is it to wake up early in the morning or is it to work out early in the morning? Okay, this is such a complicated question. <laughs> Check, 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 check. That is a great question. That is a great question. The following. Yes. And yes, yes. (laughs) Sure. I want to get up early. I want to start. I want to do all those things that great, you know, successful entrepreneurs do. They get up at 4 30 in the morning and they've, you know, my big accomplishment every day is I make my bed. Like I'm I'm of that (laughs) philosophy that if I can get my bed made, my day is completely made. But yeah, of course, I want to get up early. I want to get my day started. I know that when I exercise in the morning, I have a better, more productive day. And yeah, I've thought about that. Am I more of a night person than a morning person? I guess the bigger, the, to take it away from me and, and make it more universal, I guess the bigger point is we do sabotage ourselves because there are certain things that we can do to accomplish our goals that are not complex, right? Yes, I knew, I know I need to get to work by X o'clock and I make sure that I leave my house at a certain point to do that and I do all the things that that lead to that. Mm-hmm. And then there are these other things that we prioritize in our minds as important, but then we don't actually follow through on them. And I'm always fascinated by the self-sabotage when you know it's sort of like, you, I say to myself, I am not going to eat sugar. And I look at the cookie sitting in front of me and I'm like, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it. And I put my hand in the cookie jar and I pick it up and I eat it. What, you know, the, why we do that, that behavioral process is really fascinating. And, you know, I, I really, I think I was really triggered by this idea that we are wired for success and yet we don't achieve that success. And when it comes to public speaking, Harnessing the anxiety is a great thing, but we also know that that practice, that commitment, that that behavioral change mm-hmm. that needs to be put in, we say we want to do it. It's like everybody joins the gym in January, and by February, they no, they're no longer going. That's what's fascinating, and it's probably for a bigger conversation another time, but I think that's a very fascinating thing of what we do and why we can't follow through on those simple goals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. I think uh, as I'm working toward toward my next book, I'm thinking of a hierarchy of actions, that we talk about action, taking action, and as, as human beings, they're roughly putting it, three types of actions. There are reflexes that are just biologically um, uh, engineered actions that we don't even have to think about taking. There are habits, learned patterns of behavior that we over time become more accustomed to. So for example, um, 
having cookies in the house, going to the grocery store and putting cookies in the basket. Uh, and then there are intentional actions, the ones that are the, the ones that are the drivers of success. Uh, and those are complicated. They require intention. They require planning. They require um, uh, energizing and they require evaluation. We need to look back and see, did what I do uh, work for me? Did it bring me the results? What were the consequences? And we don't do that uh, either because we don't have the time or we don't have the energy. We're very busy. We're used to our, it's easier to make things automatic and not have to think about them. Uh, and that's where things can fall apart. Um, so that's why change is so hard. Change is really change hard. Is yeah. just hard. Yeah. You, it, you have to breathe twice as hard for the intentional behaviors and move them to the habits and that's hard. I truly think we've opened up a whole other conversation that I <laughs> genuinely would like to have you back to talk about, which, and I'm serious when I say this, and Billy's sitting there going, ooh, I have another, I have another episode. And I mean this, I think this idea of habits, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be a case study for your next book. <laughs> um, but I, in all sincerity, I think it would be great for us to continue that conversation as another podcast, because the habits are public speaking in our estimation, and this is what we do for a living and we've developed an app for this. And you know, this is our reason for being, it requires a practice mm -hmm. like everything else. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to become more calm or be mindful. You meditate, you have to get into the practice. And you know, one of the questions that we often ask people and, and we didn't have the opportunity to talk about it today is why don't people do that? You know, we all recognize that this is a big fear, that this is a big need. And yet people, I'm amazed that people just stare at it and say, well, I'm not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. I know I need to be better. I, it's sort of like someone who's very, very overweight. And the doctor says, you're going to die if you don't lose weight. And you're like, I'm going to keep going to McDonald's. Like what is happening that we're not doing it? And I know there's a lot of philosophy around it and a lot of theories around it. But I do think it's something about our brains and our habit forming and things like that. And I, I would love to get into well, that conversation a, for another podcast. There's a TF for the next podcast. Yes. So <laughs> You're going to be our regular featured guest. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I think maybe he should do the monthly updates or something. I know. I think we're going to have to have you back regularly. Ooh, pressure. I, I know we have to wrap this up here. So I, I know I mentioned to you in the beginning, we like to know where your interests lie. You talked about your next book. Share with us, if you would, what are the things that you are reading? What's on your Kindle? It's fascinating. What podcasts yeah. are you listening to? What's holding your attention these What days? are you watching on Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> depends on the time of the day. So uh, uh, the... I'm very, uh, my friends know me for a person who doesn't read novels or non uh, or fiction. So I'm very into nonfiction. Uh, I like reading things that are giving me new ideas, whether it is on uh, my field, psychology, uh, neuroscience, politics, uh, life and culture in general. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm not I don't have a lot of time to read, so I actually switch to uh, Audible a lot, so I can read. I can read. I can listen during my commute, which is a different experience. Same. Uh, so uh, the right now, I'm actually about to finish Grit, which has been on my list for a while. 
which is in a wonderful book, uh, and, and it describes in a very easy way something that uh, we all understand um, emotionally that, that we all want to have. And, and I, I, I like reading books about success because I want to see how different people approach uh, success. If you look at the literature, success and happiness are dominating the uh, self-help uh, yeah. sections. And they Love often... that. Well, you're going to be the next bestseller on success because <sighs> I, I know that that's something that you're really focused on and, and I think it's a great topic. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.